was talking about uh, uh, this great preacher, and he said, when it comes to weighty soul concerns, you might find his very spirit drenched therein. No wonder he was blessed with such amazing success. Men felt that in listening to him, they were in contact with one who was dealing with realities of infinite moment. So you get around this, this minister and people were sucked into his realities. He says, this is one of the secrets of ministerial strength and ministerial success. If you want to be successful in the ministry... He says, let your spirit be entrenched, I mean immersed in the things of God. And who can say how much of the overflowing infidelity of the present day is owing not only to the lack of spiritual instructors, not merely to the existence of grossly unfaithful and inconsistent ones, but to the coldness of many who are reputed sound and faithful. He says, man, when you look around at how much faithfulness to Christ is so rare, when you look around at all the infidelity, the adultery that's, that's, uh, that, that exists in the body of Christ, he says, yeah, you could blame it on the fakeness of teachers or the lack of spiritual instructors. You could blame it on the preachers. You could blame it on the teachers. He says, but not only that. He says, you can't even blame it nearly, uh, merely on the existence of people who are just unfaithful, people who are just not on point. But then he says, well, you can blame it on people who are real cold, real dead, but they've got a reputation for being solid and faithful. They're reputed sound and faithful. They're called sound. They're called faithful. But when you look at them, everything is dead. Everything is cold. Check it out. Men cannot but feel that if religion is worth anything, it is worth everything. Like if you have a religion, if it's really a true religion, a true faith, it can't just be worth a little something, something to you. Because the nature of religion is it's worth everything to the individual. He says that if it calls for any measure of zeal and warmth, it will justify the utmost degrees of these. I mean, if, if religion is supposed to spark any kind of zeal, any kind of warmth, it's supposed to spark a high dosage of it. Talk back to me if you all agree. Men may dislike, detest, scoff at, persecute the latter, yet their consciences are all the while silently reminding them that if there be a God and a Savior, a heaven and a hell, any short of such life and love is hypocrisy, dishonest, perjury. If there's really a God, if there's really a Savior, if there's really a heaven, if there's really a hell, casual Christianity is a fraud. That's that's the point. I got rocked off that because I'm thinking about the opportunity for us to be the real thing. The opportunity for us to not just come here every week out of routine, us to not just fulfill our obligations for you who are at Bible college. You know, you got to go somewhere on Sundays. Might as well go to something that's not too dry, not too boring, not too. I mean, all of these things and you check it off. I did it. But fervor and a zeal that 
make, that lures people into our realities like, dang, I, gotta, I need to get sucked up in that. They make it look real. They make it look intense. One of the things that's making popular hip-hop popular is the crunk era. A lot of this generation, they don't want to sit down and hear somebody cleverly put something together. That's, that's a small and, and decreasing audience. They like a frenzy. Crunk people just be like, get crunk. And cats just be like, yeah. I mean, I don't care. Even if you don't have rhythm, you could join in. Yeah, we're getting crunk. So I think about the, the move or the shift in spirituality, a crunkness that's controlled because there is some who they just run around and they get credit for being on fire. And there are others who, even in a controlledness, exemplify or exude a fervor and a warmth that Brother Horatius Bonar was speaking of. So as I say talk back to me, it's because I don't, I, I, I like that. And I'm, I sound like those old preachers. Talk back to me now. Say amen. Somebody say amen. Now I'm starting to see why they said all of that stuff. And then it's like they say it when they don't have to say it, though. And so, like, we really do have to say it. Like, say amen. Come on, man. Let's pray and let's continue. Let's pray and let's continue. Our Father and our God. With a body of Christ, a contingent of it. And Father, we thank you for not turning your back on us. We thank you, Lord God, for not leaving us in our stupor, leaving us in our blindness. We thank you, Lord God, that in spite of the fact that we weren't looking your way, we weren't trying to holler at you, you came and hollered at us. We thank you, Lord God, that because of that, we're part of an eternal people who have no end, and we get to participate in an eternal kingdom that has no end. We thank you, Lord God, that our best days are yet ahead, no matter how good our days are now. We thank you for institutions that are committed to transferring and transmitting the gospel of Jesus Christ and all the wonderful truths that surround it and illustrate it. Now be with your servant this morning as we deal with matters pertaining to our faith. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to do a little bit of recapping real quick just because I, went, I started looking at chapter 3, this, this session with Nicodemus, and said this is a perfect time to give you all a 10 in 1. 10 facts, one truth. 10 facts, one truth about salvation. John chapter 3. And it's sort of going to breeze through the first part because Pastor E. Mace, he dealt with the first like six verses. And so I'm going to breeze through it, but I'm going to just walk you through something that came to me, and I believe that everyone here ought to be convinced of these facts. So let's begin. I'm going to move this. If there's anything that I hate, it's receiving a letter back in the mail with that funny little finger pointing to the top corner, talking about insufficient postage. 
I mean, we're talking about 39 cents, I'm thinking. I'm thinking, come on, you mean to tell me it's been like seven days, I think the bill's paid. All of a sudden, I get the envelope back, realize I don't have 39 cents worth of postage in the corner, and you send it back to me? Stamped insufficient postage. I get frustrated, like, just go ahead and take it. Like, come on, it's 39 cents. Only to find that the post office won't budge. They'll send your letter back to you, no matter how urgent it is, whether your lights get cut off or not, whether this was money to your kids who were in college. That letter will come back if there's insufficient postage. I think about this as we look at John talking about a faith that God sends right back to the individual or belief that an individual tries to pass off on him and he sends it back because there is a such thing as insufficient faith or insufficient belief. John chapter 2, Jesus is on the scene. He's already started his public ministry. Verses 23 to 24 says, when he, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Belief is the key to the book of John. For John's purpose statement for writing it is, I'm writing all this. I chose my stories even different than the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke chose a set of stories about Jesus Christ. I chose a whole different, on a whole different vibe. I chose my stories so that at the end of the book, or by the end of the time, or somewhere along the journey, you will believe in Jesus Christ, believe that he's God who came to earth, and then by believing, you may have life in his name. So for John, he gets right to letting you know, but there is a belief that a lot of people will say, yo, I do believe, but it's just like my envelope. It can come right back to you. So he goes right into it with a man who he had to send his belief back. Nicodemus chapter three. So the first thing we see here, 10 facts, one truth. The first fact Religion is not good enough. The first fact is religion is not good enough. It says in chapter uh, 3 verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, which this is the 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 the. I mean, the template of what you would want to be if religion would be enough. He's a Pharisee, which was the most devoted of the men. It says here that Jesus knew what was in men. Now, here comes a man. He covered this last week. Here comes a man. But it's not just any man. This is the man. (laughs) This is a Pharisee who was one of the most devoted sects of Judaism. This is a ruler in the Sanhedrin. This is one who sought Jesus out, as though it were. This is one who jumps into flattering Jesus. But religion, at its finest, is not enough. Though he was dedicated, he was a devoted keeper of the law, and though he was a ruler in the religious community, set on boards, he used to govern the affairs of Christian, I mean, of of Jews uh, who were God's people. 
It still wasn't enough. And so Jesus says, in spite of the fact that you know Torah, and in spite of the fact that you sit and you rule, in spite of the fact that you tithe, and in spite of the fact that you got all your ducks in a row, you must be born again. Religion is not enough. What was at stake was the kingdom. If your best effort is not enough, religiously speaking, what does it keep you from? This is all by way of recap because he covered this. But the kingdom is at stake. Religion is not enough. First fact, the kingdom is at stake is the second fact. One truth. He says here, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom, this idea that people will be banned, people are excluded from the kingdom that God is ruling, and you want to be a part of God's kingdom. Right now, Saddam Hussein has just been declared guilty, and he's scheduled, and he has been sentenced to hang. This is a classic illustration of a king who ruled in such a way that people wanted out of the kingdom, not in the kingdom. American immigration is another vivid reminder that there are people who will break their necks, risk their lives trying to cross the border, risk their lives lives trying to smuggle people in, risk their lives, break their backs to get inside of a kingdom that's halfway decent. Jesus says, don't get it twisted. There is a kingdom you want to be a part of, and it's at stake. Without the right kind of belief, and without what we're going to get into, this new birth that is going to be required of you, you won't see this kingdom. And you think, I don't care, but that's what people say who hate America, but will break their necks to come here. I don't like you, God, but I want your kingdom. You would want his kingdom. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the children of Israel said, we want a king like the nations. Samuel said, oh, you don't know what you're asking for. Don't, you got Yahweh. You don't want Saddam. They said, we want a king like the other nations. God says, don't worry, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. We live in a day where people don't know when they reject Jesus Christ, they're rejecting a king who's got a kingdom they are going to want to be a part of. The kingdom of God in the Bible is that reality, that comprehensive rule. It's God calling the shots. He says, Nicodemus, I know you're complimenting me because as a Jew, Nicodemus was looking forward to a kingdom. As we share our faith today, some of you are here, you're not looking forward to a kingdom necessarily. In fact, we're used to telling people, do you want to go to heaven? In the Bible, you really don't see people with a pitch, do you want to go to heaven? Everybody in the Bible wanted heaven to come to earth. So they didn't say when you die, you can go to heaven. They said, yo, you can have eternal life. And the idea was you can have an eternal life in a banging kingdom that's not up in the clouds somewhere. It's right here. That's what people who are in turmoil on this earth want to hear, which is why a lot of people don't like our lofty, you know, heavenly minded spill because they're struggling with this life. Well, there's news that there is a kingdom that this life here is going to be transformed and recreated. And but you, you have to have a certain kind of belief and you have to have a certain kind of birth. The kingdom. Third fact. To gain access to this kingdom, you must be born again. Nicodemus said to him, 
How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He just repeats it. If a spirit, if something spiritual, he uses a Greek word, anothen, which means a to be born again, but it also can mean to be born from above. John always used words that had a double meaning. So he's saying, yo, first of all, you have to be born again. Secondly, this birth can't just be. Don't ask your mom to like and your pops to like go and do what you did the last time. That kind of birth won't work. This must be a birth from above, spirit and water, which is promised in Ezekiel, as Pastor E was talking about. This era, you must be a, born into a new era where the spirit of God has become your new parent. Or given life, and God becomes your new parent. I like what it says here because the idea goes back. And as we begin to tell people the gospel, one of the things we're telling them, we, that's our starting point. In Genesis, man was alive. What did life look like? It looked like man running and meeting God in the cool of the day. Life wasn't just physical life, but spiritual life. They loved God. They wanted God. They ruled for God. They named stuff for God. They explored his world together. When sin came in the picture, because God said, the day you eat of the forbidden tree, you will die. Adam still physically kept kicking. But from that point on, he began to run from God. So God had to say, yo, where are you? It's like us. We have to go and ask people to come and fellowship around the things of God. We have to have the right band. We have to have the right speakers. We have to have the right praise team. You've got to ask people, come, God's here. Spiritual life, you are already motivated, and that's the reason why he says, man, you must be born again. What do you mean I need to be born again? Don't you know you're part of that people group, like every human being that is an Adam that died and that needs a new birth? Ephesians 2 says, and you, now Jews understood, understood this, so in, uh, in Ephesians, he's talking to Gentiles, he says, don't you get it twisted, you too. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, or you were dead because of trespasses and sins, yet we keep living. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and the evidence was you walk like everybody else. Romans 5 talks about it, too, that through one man we died, Adam, yet we keep living. And so... Though Adam lived over 900 years old, his death was evident. And I like the way the Bible lets you see death immediately take its toll. The Bible says in Genesis that man was good. Man was, I mean, that everything was good. Man was very good. Chapter 3 comes on the scene. It says, now the serpent, you can almost hear the whole music switch. Like, it gets real dark. Now the serpent comes slithering in. All of a sudden, you have Adam and Eve sinning. You have God pronouncing judgment to let you know, I don't think highly of this. And then in chapter 4, you start going into murder. By the time you get to five and six, man is continually evil and God is regretting that he made him. Then you see floods and then you see God having to start all over again. A glimpse of what he was going to tell every human being that came out of Adam. Ever since sin came in, a new start became mandatory. 
Ten facts about our faith. Religion isn't good enough. You say, I already know that. Think to yourself, how many times do I lean on something other than what we're about to talk about, a new beginning that's granted by God alone? How many times do I rest on my attendance in church? How many times is it that I rest on the fact that my parents, you ask somebody on the street, yo, are you saved or, yo, what, I mean, are you and God in a proper relationship? I go to church. Yo, what's up with you and the Lord? What you mean, what's up with us? I mean, I know I ain't doing what I need to be doing, but I ain't doing all I could be doing. I'm too blessed to be stressed. And all of the cliches, religion won't cut it. The kingdom is at stake. But to gain access, you must be born again. No visas granted. He goes on. Fact four. The naturalness is the problem. Just being human is the problem. Look, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. As he sees the perplexity that's on and the perplexedness that's on Nicodemus's face. Imagine Jesus. Jesus is dropping weight and we can't see the facial expressions of Nicodemus. We can't see that he's sitting up there like, like almost with the, and you're going to see through Jesus's dialogue that it's not just, I don't understand this. Like this dude is wilding, which is why three times he says, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen. This is a true statement. It would be the equivalent of us saying, I'm telling you. Like, the words I'm telling you could be like, hey, I'm telling you uh, my number. That's one thing. But if I say, I'm telling you, I did. That's a different kind of I'm telling you. That's a please. you got to trust me on this. Jesus Christ sees his skepticism, sees that he doesn't know. Just like when we talk to people, just like some of you may be skeptical. What are you talking about? Truly, truly, I say unto you. He goes on and says, listen, your naturalness is the problem. The fact that all there is to you is something physical. He says, matter of fact, you've got spiritual parents, but you need, excuse me, you've got physical parents. You don't have a spiritual parent. You haven't been reborn by this new life that, um, now we take it for granted because we've heard about being born again. People use born again as a denomination. Like, oh, yo, you Baptist? Now I'm born again. I heard somebody tell me that. I was like, word, Okay. Every time parents have kids... You start looking to see, well, who do they look like? Oh, he got your ears. Oh, man, but he got your eye. Oh, man, look at your eyebrows. Man, oh, there go them toes of yours. I can't believe it. Yo, where did he get his complexion from? Man, he's going to be tall. I wonder how that happened. All these kind of things. You look to see which parent. Sometimes you have to go beyond the parents. You say, wait, that ain't none of us. You know what? That's his aunt. That's his aunt. He got that from Uncle Jerome. Uh-uh. Look, Uncle Jerome. Like, you can see, you got to trace all the fa- God says, if you were to trace our family heritage, all the way back to Adam, there's a life that wouldn't show up. There was something in us that we need in order to enter into this kingdom that wouldn't show up if you go all the way back to Adam. 
And he's looking at Nicodemus, who's got all the natural trappings that you would want to have if God was supposed to look your way. And he says, and through all of those trappings, when I look inside, you don't have that life, that life that you're going to need in order to exceed the kingdom, into the kingdom, which are both synonymous. It's missing. This naturalness is the problem. Romans 8, 6 says it's the natural mind that's hostile toward God. It's natural just means a mind that the Holy Spirit hasn't come and re-rigged to be able to work anymore. He says, man, it's your natural mind that's hostile toward God. It says, therefore, he can't please God. People think all I got to do is start doing better. Ah, man, I know I'm going to go to hell, but I'm going to turn it around. God says, nah. If you're strictly natural, if you're strictly you, if you're who you've always been, you won't turn it around. You'll start doing some things different. But that'll be it. You won't be eligible for the kingdom. A birth has to take place because the naturalness is the problem. Anything you're about to do as you is the problem, which is why the Bible says your righteousness is like a filthy rag. It's not, the, it's not that you're not trying. It's not that you're not scrubbing. It's you're scrubbing with a muddy rag. Sometimes you iron and something's already burnt and seared on the iron. And so you're like, man, I'm telling you, this is going to be Christmas. Oh, my goodness. What happened? Because what you're using to fix a problem has a problem. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit. The spirit is not a force. The spirit is a person. You say, I know that. Yet so many times what people don't realize is that God, the, uh, the spirit, has things to dish out that we rebel against or the things that rub us the wrong way. Often it's because we haven't been reawakened by the Spirit. Our nature is the problem. It's not just that we sin, it's that we have a sin condition. All of this is you find in John chapter 3. Truths that we already know, facts that we already know. It's one truth. Truly, truly, I say, this is true. Everything I'm telling you in chapter 3, verses 1 to 22, is true. It should replace the wine, replace the water. Jesus says, I'm going to replace the temple. Now he's coming and replacing your strategy to get close to God. I'm replacing it. It's no longer going to be anything external. Something miraculous is going to have to happen internally. This is what our society is missing. Everyone says, I'm spiritual or I like spiritual. What they mean is I like religious stuff. God is saying, like, tell them. They won't understand. As we're going to see, even as Nicodemus is like, yo, how can this be? What are you talking about? I don't understand it. But he's saying, yo, you don't just sin, you're sinful. It's the state we're in. It's like when kids come to the um, daycare, sometimes they know, yo, if your kids are sick, we won't take you into child care. So, like, some parents, I mean, they just know what that means. Like, dang, they're going to mess me up for being in a regular service. So they try to wipe their nose real good, you know what I'm saying, wipe their eyes from all the, t- the glassiness. It's like, you know what I'm saying, give them Tylenol, children's Tylenol in the morning. Like, you better shape up. I'm telling you, you ain't going to mess this up for me. I'm saying, and they wipe them clean, but they're still sick. 
The problem is not just you got a runny nose. The problem is you have a runny nose because you're sick. The problem is not just that we lie. The problem is not just that we steal. The problem is not just that we're crooked. The problem is that we have a heart that manufactures it so soon as you wipe it away, it's steadily pumping. So other religions, they, they do the same things we do. They want the same things we want often. They just don't have a prescription. They haven't bought in to this prescription that says, but what you can't do is just wipe the blood off. You got a bullet in you. And this is what he has to tell Nicodemus, who for us is supposed to be the prototype of everyone who's going to come with any kind of religious inclination. All of us have a religious inclination. Even the hardest person sort of has a little religious something, something in their blood. And he says, anyone who comes with the minutest religious inclination, tell them religion is not going to be enough. Tell them that their participation in when I redo my thing, starting now, you can have a foretaste of me running the show. Says when I come back and do that, tell them they, they need to be born all over again. They need to be born from above. They can't conjure it up. It must descend on top of them because their naturalness is the problem. Their hands are messy. And when they try to fix the situation, they just make it worse. So Nicodemus is sitting here now, and he's bugging, and Jesus can see it. So Jesus is trying to paint the picture and make it more vivid. Do not marvel, verse 7, do not marvel that I said you must be born again. Get it. He's sitting here, I mean, looking at a man who's a leader, who's looking at Jesus like he's tripping now. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Take note. The Spirit has to move. Genesis says that the earth was formless and void. The Spirit of God was hovering. Then God said, let there be light. And there was. The idea is that before light, before creation was completed, the spirit of God had to move on the scene of what was lifeless and lightless. He says here, just like the wind is this invisible force that the only time you really see the wind is when you see its impact. So is everyone who winds up saved. If you wind up saved, if you look back and you're authentically saved, you will be the product of some of a power's work. It wouldn't have been your own work. And he says, he says, so you got to understand the wind is untraceable. The wind is uncontrollable. It's uncontainable. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. They are the sails that let you know there is wind. See, sails can't blow. They just can catch wind and therefore they move. Kites don't fly. They just are blown. He says human beings who are dead in sin, human beings who are part of the sons of Adam, don't just get saved. Don't just wake up. Don't just come to Christ. Don't they don't do that. They're affected by someone moving on them, moving them to that place and making that possible. 
You say, that's not true. But that's why he has to tell him, don't marvel that you must be born again. Because you see, Nicodemus, here's the impossibility of it. He's here's the ridiculousness of new birth. And he's like, part of it is, I don't understand. Part of it is, but dang, that's impossible. Part of it is, it's too hard for me. I'm getting frustrated because you're raising the bar beyond what I can do. He says, yo, don't, don't, don't get in a frenzy. Listen, you're not going to have to do it. It's going to be done to you. Ten facts. We're a demonstration that God has moved. We're not an initiator of God moving. You say, keep going. Nicodemus said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? For anyone out there that's saying, how can these things be? Out of a, I don't like that doctrinal position. Or out of a, I'm not feeling, I don't see how you got that from here. I'm not feeling you. Verse 23 to 24 of 2 says, cats believed in him and Jesus says, I'm not buying it. That's the first problem. I did what you said. You said all I have to do is believe. Many believed. Jesus says I'm not buying it. Verse 3 is a classic example of someone who believed based on signs. And Jesus says I'm not buying it. He was religious. You would think Jesus would buy it. He didn't. Jesus says you're at risk of missing the kingdom because the belief you have is insufficient. Insufficient in that it is merely a type of belief that's separated from this miracle that has to happen. This miracle is water and spirit birth. A whole new dimension you don't even know about. This miracle is going to solve the fact when you were born, you were born just natural. And not in touch and in tune and connected to God by the Spirit. And now that that's the case, don't worry. It's not your doing. You will be moved on. If, it, if you're going to be saved, you will be moved on by the Spirit. And then this will happen. Not necessarily in the sequence, though. It just happens to be that this is a sequence here. Then you will be convinced of truths that the, the kind of truth that I'm telling you now that originate above. Listen, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now, I don't know about y'all. I don't know if y'all read the book of John and you saw it like there's a lot of stuff you don't understand, but you just read it anyway because you still get the gist. But when you're preaching, you get stumped along the way because you want to faithfully be able to explain everything here to the best of your ability. Who is the we? That's the first problem. He says here, wait, you don't understand? Dang, we witness 
Excuse me, we bear witness, we, excuse me, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. What is, who is he talking about? Several uh, options here, but the two that I, I, I lean and I sort of waver on is, is the we, him and his father, because Jesus always speaks that which he hears his father say, and their testimony is always one. He says, we speak of what we know and what we've seen, because remember, Nicodemus comes to him and say, we know you're a teacher from God. He's like, the whole we know camp is wrong. He says, but we know and we speak of what we know and what we've seen. Either that's him and the father or it could be his disciples, Jesus, including because you know that, you know, when you're on a team, even what's not true of you. Austin gets uh, is attributed to you because of who's on your team. So you could be a dope basketball team, even if a player on the team is not. Yo, man, y'all are dope. You're talking to the dude who's not dope, but he's on the team. You're like, yo, y'all are dope. Oh, man, word. So it could be Jesus and his disciples saying, because my disciples have seen that I'm the truth. So either way, what his point is, is, look. I know what I'm talking about. Remember, you're convinced of divine truth. This is not a problem for me. It's not a stumbling block for me. If I told you of earthly things uh, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He says, listen, I'm using all these earthly illustrations. I'm hooking you up and letting you know all these things, which, and I'm using earthly examples in order to school you. You don't even believe the stuff that can be communicated in earthly terms. Suppose I start dropping weight about heavenly realities that I haven't even started cracking open yet. And you're not believing. But remember, the reason why that's a problem is because this is the teacher of Israel. This is a ruler in Israel. And he's talking about we know. None of us know. Until when the spirit moves, if you're going to be saved, the spirit's going to move and he's going to convince you of truths that other people will say that's you tripping. Which is why we can appreciate Jesus as the Christ and not just the white man with blonde hair. Then it comes, the spirit tenderizes you, makes you like down with this truth. And this, this is why he said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. He says, don't be surprised. I'm talking about, yeah, I could blow you away with earthly realities, but I could blow you away with heavenly realities. You know why? Because I'm the only one who has access to heavenly realities now because of my place in heaven and my descension from heaven. Remember, this stuff has to descend on us because we can't ascend to him. Remember, that's why I'm saying when you put it all together, you start looking and saying, man, and what does God want? He wants you to believe correctly. Remember, a belief he doesn't have to send back as insufficient belief. Well, what does he want me to believe? Dag, keep going. Glad you asked. Convince the divine truth. Convince that the cross is your cure. As Moses... Excuse me. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I mean, if you really read this, it doesn't seem to connect unless you understand the flow of the argumentation. Because, I mean, he's like he's just jumping all over the place. He's talking about the wind. He's talking about, you know, what I'm saying snakes being lifted up. He's talking about going up to heaven and coming down. 
I mean, all kinds of stuff. And it's like, what does all this have to do with anything? Because the whole passage is about belief. Right belief, that's a a necessary ingredient to receiving Christ, who's king, who's offering his kingdom. But belief from people who are dead is an impossibility. So the wind must blow. Talk back to me. I like what he says. He says, the cross as the cure. Nicodemus was admitting that Jesus was a good teacher, an amazing miracle worker, even approved by God. He says, no one does these signs. He didn't say no one does these miracles. He said, no one does these signs. Signs were a way of God authenticating this person is, a, is approved by me. So Nicodemus was, was, was giving Jesus a lot of kudos. The only problem was he didn't know, and Jesus was preparing him And everyone else who's thinking, how am I going to experience this new birth? Well, it requires you being able to place faith in the one who's lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent. In Numbers 21, of course, if you know the story, some snakes bit a bickering and a complaining and a stiff-necked people of Israel. So they started dying. And so God told Moses, yo, I want you to build a bronze serpent. I want you to put it up on a pole, and I want you to just lift it up. When you lift it up, anyone who looks, I don't care what's going on in their life. I don't care how close to death they are. If they just look at the cure. It didn't say look in faith in the Old Testament. It just said if they look. But the idea is just looking at it. As a result, they would, uh, they would be healed. That's like when somebody said, yo, man, I got some. You don't even look when you don't even believe. Like, yo, man, I'm serious. I got $100 for you, man. Go ahead, man. So like I was saying, you don't even look. But if, yo, I got $100. You got $100? <laughs> uh, man, stop playing. Love because you believe. Oh, I got you. No, you didn't. I ain't believe you. Why you, why you stop and come? So it's like the same thing. It's like if you don't believe that he's going, if you're going to be healed, you won't even look. Hey, y'all, look at this serpent. Oh, y'all that's dying. Like, I'm dying. You ain't got time to just be looking around. Them. Ah, oh, bang, a serpent. That's banging. Oh, you know what I'm saying? None of that. Well, he says in the same way, the son of man must be lifted up. And anyone who looks to him as the cure. Because, see, the, the thing that's different about that is you can look at Jesus and admire a work on the cross, but not trust him as a cure for what he's saying of the impossibilities that come with just being natural, born of Adam and hostile toward God. So he's looking and he's saying, Nicodemus, you're not feeling me. You're a teacher in Israel. I'm trying to hip you to some earthly stuff. Who knows? You could become one of my disciples and I drop some heavenly stuff on you. I'm going to drop some heavenly stuff on John who's writing this. John's going to see stuff in the heavens. Paul's going to go up to the heavens. I'm trying to tell you all that I could drop weight on you if I want to. But you can't even deal with Mary had a little lamb. So he says the cross is the cure. Because if he's just a teacher, you'll learn from Jesus. If he's a miracle worker, you'll be amazed at Jesus. If he's just a prophet, you'll honor him somewhat. And if, but if he's lifted as a cure, you'll receive him and experience life. Mad religions have Jesus up on pedestals. Only the Christian faith authentically prescribes to Jesus as a cure for an internal death that they were born with. Some of us have always just 
I mean, we sort of going with Jesus because, I mean, we sort of like he was passed off to us. You've never looked at him. And the idea of being lifted up on the cross, once again, John uses a, a, a double entendre, a word that basically has two meanings. Not only is the cross lifted up just because you got to lift it up. But in the Bible's eyes, when Jesus Christ was on that cross, he was being exalted. His humiliation is when he walked among men. His exaltation is when he died for them. Why do you think we worship him? Why do you think we make songs about him? Real quickly. Ten facts. Ten facts, one truth. Religion's not enough for y'all. The kingdom is at stake. You must be born again, born from above. Your naturalness is your main problem. The spirit must blow. The spirit must move. The cross must be your cure. You must be convinced of this bug, strain-sounding truth. You're loved, another fact. You're loved, another fact. One truth, you're loved. Verse 16, most popular verse probably out here. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You're loved. When the miracle of God moving on your chaos, on your deadness, bringing you to the point where you're convinced of truths you couldn't just conjure up, you couldn't just come up with, truths you can't necessarily go to the lab and prove. When you look to the Son of Man and in looking to him as cure who's lifted up, when you're cured of your sin, when you're resurrected from your death and you have eternal life, you know it's because God loved you. God loved you. Jobs in the bag. He, he sent his son to die for you. He, of course he's going to hook you up with a job. Crib, of course he's going to hook you up with a crib. It's finances, of course he's going to hook you up with finances. Since he gave his son, will he not freely give us all things? I remember some cats, what we call hyper-Calvinist cats that I went to school with. Like, with a smile, they say, God doesn't love everybody. I said, well, what about John 3.16? Well, you know, nah, he hates the unbeliever and doesn't love them. Oh, yeah, yeah, God hates them. He only loves the elect. So when you read John 3.16, you read, God so loved the elect. And so I was like, man, that's crazy. Because the next line says, for God did not send his son into the elect to condemn the elect. And I've been looking through the, at the scholars and Calvinist scholars who still hold to the tension. Maybe why, if God can say that he loves those who he died for, why? Didn't he ensure that they'd be saved? Now, that one I can't answer. Why everyone isn't saved if God loves everybody? You got me there. But what I can say is that John 
says, God so loved the world that he demonstrated it by giving his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. When I was younger, my pops, um, I'm going to close. When I was younger, my pops used to come to us and say, son, listen, I want to buy them Chinese food tonight. I want you all to eat bagels. And we'd be like, all right, that's what's up. So that the kids around the block would see a demonstration of love from our pops. We agreed we'd take the bagels, even though if they weren't in the picture, we would have had the Chinese food. It was a demonstration to them by taking from us and giving to them. That was so that my pops could say, I mean, they could say to my pops, hey, Mr. Brands dig us. Now, they didn't know that the reason why Mr. Brands dig them uh, or, or the way Mr. Brands dig them, he had to come and tell us just eat bagels tonight. God says, yeah, the reason why Jesus caught the short end of the stick is because I wanted to demonstrate I have love for you. Your love. Real quickly, you believed. You believed. Ten truths about your salvation. When the miracle happens, when the spirit moves on you, when you're convinced of the divine truth, when you see Jesus Christ as your cure, you believe. Remember, you're induced. Your belief is induced. Right now, we had a sister who went in early. She had to be induced. Her labor had to be induced because she wasn't going to go into labor on her own. And the reason why belief can still be what we do, but we not take credit, it not be a meritorious work, is because our belief is induced. You must know your confidence in what you're going to see in Scripture is that you believed. That's your responsibility, but that belief is induced. You say, uh-uh, I don't like that because that's not me doing it. Well, that's the point, because remember, you can't. You believe. Look at verse 17 real quick. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out by God. Lastly, your love for light begins to eclipse your love for dark. Let me put it together for y'all. You got religious notions. Perhaps you're in the presence of someone who can see through your smoke screen. Perhaps you're in the presence of someone who knows that you need to hear the gospel. Ten facts about eternal life or salvation. Your religion wasn't enough. The kingdom was at stake. You needed to be born all over. Your naturalness was your problem. So the spirit had to move on you. 
He convinced you of a truth that sounded bizarre and sounds bizarre to all those who don't who haven't been enlightened. You saw the cross as a cure. This was a demonstration that you were loved. You ended up believing. And then your love for light eclipsed your love for darkness. Who's going to reject this message? Says here, people who like wickedness don't want light. People who rather party, rather smoke, rather drink, rather... They don't even realize that that's not a prerequisite to give up. I mean, it it is, but it's not something that you have to do yourself. It's like God saying, yo, you're not going to come to me saying, yeah, I want to keep having sex, but I, I want the kingdom too, like Simon the sorcerer. Yeah, I want that power, and I want what I have too. When you when you really come because God has brought you, you come with the burden of sin on you. You don't come because, man, I heard that God, sucker, I heard God's giving out eternal life if you just believe. You don't have to give up anything, dude. He told me. Yeah, man, I'm telling you. Nah, man. I'm telling you, you ain't got to stop all of that, man. God know you human, man. He made it, man. This is natural, man. This is from the dirt. That's what I'm saying, from the essence. Usually we talk about, well, what can you do and if you can do and how you can do. It doesn't work that way. When you see the real thing, all these things seem to line up. When you see something fake, you got to say, well, where's this part? Then y'all start arguing. Well, was he moved or did he choose himself? Well, did he say no to drugs first or did he come? We don't even get into that discussion. When it's real, how many people in here are saved and you didn't see wickedness starting to peel off and even your appetite for it decrease? And how many of you in here now still embrace wickedness, but it's, it's problematic for you? I'm going to um, ask Trip Lee to come up um, and do this song. And after that, we'll pray. And if anybody wants to place their faith in the Son of Man who was lifted up as a cure, lifted up so that those who look at him may have life, we're going to give you that opportunity.